Welcome to the On The Right Path podcast. I'm Brett Gunning, your host of the show. Today we begin our Pete Knoll series where we'll look to learn more about the life of one of the greatest basketball teachers of all time. Over the course of this series, we'll speak to his children as well as a number of his former players, all with the purpose of carrying on his spirit. Hope you enjoyed today's conversation with Tom Knoll, one of Pete's four sons. Um, great to have you on the uh, podcast today. So glad you could be with us. I, I wanted to kind of just jump right in and just kind of hear some of your early memories of of growing up in a in, in somewhat of a basketball royalty family. Here it is. Your dad wins the 1959 uh, NCAA championship, 1960 coaches the Olympic team. How, what were your early memories as a kid kind of just growing up in that environment? Well, I remember when my dad was the coach at Michigan State after he left USF back in uh, 1951, I think it was. And uh, my mother just uh, uh, gave birth to a baby uh, brother, Roger, under me. And so I was three years older. I remember at the age of five, five, you know, going on six, going to my dad's practice at Denison Hall. Now. Mm. A little trivia, uh, people want to know, well, where did the cagers come from? You know, it's always been, you know, cagers. What's that about? Well, Denison was a field house. And so what the field house was, they had a, a completely different uh, uh, upper level. It was an oval track that, that also had portable stands, but it had a, uh, a, a cage that, that literally dropped down. It was... Uh, uh, it was fencing that, that rolled down. So the balls that were down on the lower part, which was the basketball court and was used for wrestling and, and used for others, that, that court, all right, if the ball went up there, it would never go into the running trap. And so up there, they, in the Denison Fieldhouse, they had boxing. They had, they had it all back in the day, if you can believe it. So my dad, in his brilliant wisdom, decided, uh, and my brother Pete, who was three years older, he was out on the court, but he put me into his office and basically locked me in his office and said, Tommy, you just stay here. And he gave me all about, oh, maybe a half a dozen papers and uh, some pencils and crayons. Well, you know, my dad had practice for, I guess it was an hour and a half. I didn't know time back then, Brett. He left me in his office. I ran out of paper in about five minutes. So <laughs> I decided to go into his into his. Uh, his filing cabinet. And I found uh, the back pages didn't have any, uh, they were blank. And so I ended up, uh, if you can believe this, I took out a bunch of, of, of his uh, scouting reports and, and stats and whatever and, 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 and used the back, back pages, all right, to <laughs> draw on. So the assistant coach, I forget who he was, he comes into the office and he goes, oh, Tommy. I just remember saying, looking at me and just going, oh, Tommy. And then he went back and he got the manager. And I remember them saying, what are we going to tell coach? And so then they went and got my dad. My dad comes in. And I remember, I remember him saying, Tommy, this will be the last time you ever come to one of my practices. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. So that was my introduction to basketball. Wow. By, uh, by Pete Newell as a coach. <laughs> Wow. And, <laughs> and, and I, did, I never went to another practice. <laughs> that's funny. 
Do you but, remember? But as a kid, but as a kid yeah. growing up, you know, during that time, it was really exciting. Uh, it was just, uh, you know, the, the, there was a fever going on in the Bay Area. You know, the, the, the team was, was very representative of, of the game on the West Coast. And, you know, there were some great teams on the West Coast, too. USC, uh, Force Too Good. And John Wooden at UCLA, and and uh, and so the, the the prelude to all that was 1958. They went to the finals, uh, or or the west, uh, the far west regional finals, and lost to Seattle U on a last second shot. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was played at the, if you can believe it, it was also played at the uh, uh, Cow Palace. Right. And then uh, and then the the championship they went the following year, 59. They won it. So he actually. Uh, it was a controversial call. You can go back and look at it. There was a, uh, it was a non-existent uh, foul call. And just a little trivia, the guy that made the call, all right, uh, ended up being charged by the FBI because he was a football official. Ended up being <laughs> charged by the FBI for uh, gambling. Wow. Yeah, yeah. That, was, that came up like six months later. Okay, so anyway, Cal, Cal would have been there 58, 59, 60. You know, wow. which was really unheard of back then, except for uh, Adolph Rupp in Kentucky, you know, seemed to have their, their run back in the 50s, if you remember, yep. you know, with, with those guys. Anyway, uh, just, just a little trivia there to, 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 uh, to give you, a, you know, the, the genesis of how, you know, uh, Pete Newell evolved with Cal and, and uh, the players that he had were nondescript, but they were fundamentally. Uh, there are a lot of players, Brett, that know how to play the game, but don't understand how to play. Right. And so uh, one thing that that always uh, overheard my dad tell coaches when he talked to him on the phone, he always said, be sure you teach the why. Okay, you know, everybody knows how to tie their shoes. Everybody knows how to, you know, put their shorts on and, and, uh, you know, go out and shoot around. And and, but what's the purpose? You know, do you have your shoes tight, tied, tight enough so that when when you're out there playing, they don't come undone and you have to stop? You know, and, and, and so it was a little things. He was really – he would have been a great English teacher because he would have made you cross the, the T's, you know, <laughs> and, and end them. So. Yeah, that, that line, teach the why, you know, I, I was fortunate to, to hear him speak uh, a couple different times, and that, that was probably the main – one of the biggest things I took was, was that, that concept, and, and, and obviously that was something – part of his foundational – teaching that that impacted so many people so you you grow up in in this basketball family talk about how, how did you get to university of hawaii for your playing well, days that, that, might, yeah, that must I, have been I, quite a an adventure i uh, i, I uh, matriculated in the bay area i played uh, basketball at bishop o'dowd high school which uh is at the time uh was considered one of the top uh basketball uh, high school basketball teams in northern california we were ranked number one in northern california uh at the time and and uh, we had five players on my high school team that uh, received division one scholarships which was really unheard of i I got one to the university of portland uh dave pulliott who was uh you know uh, all california state uh california high school uh went to santa clara played there uh, another player, Don Johnson, went to Cal uh, Berkeley, played there uh, on scholarship. Uh, Tim uh, Cummings uh, played at Cal State Hayward. And then Greg August played uh, uh, at uh, 
Cal State. Uh, I think he played at Cal State Hayward also after the service. But but what I'm saying is is that you know the the opportunity that I had from you know being able to be introduced to basketball through my father and his success and what have you. And then Pete. Pete was always my uh, my older brother. Pete Jr. was always my go-to in watching him uh, mm-hmm. play and wanting to emulate him. So you know, you always have a model to follow when you're a young person, and you look up to that that older brother or sibling uh, right. or, or another player. So O'Dowd was where I went, got a scholarship to Portland, and then uh, that was during the Vietnam period. Uh, my draft status changed from uh, 2S uh, to uh, 1A. So I was going to be uh, put in the lottery. Uh, Brett, I'll be honest with you. I was 19 years old, didn't really know who I was, you know, where I was going and what I was doing. All I knew is that I, uh, I loved to play basketball and didn't give much attention to uh, the uh, humanities aspect of, uh, you know, this planet. So right. uh, I ended up uh, going into the service. My father recommended that I go into the Navy Reserve and uh which i would go two years active and then four years uh reserve duty so i went into the navy and uh got into their uh submarine uh, pacific program where a lot of uh, college athletes and professional athletes baseball and, and basketball uh ended up in uh in this program in uh, at pearl harbor uh there were the baseball program they had brett back then and this was in the late 60s they had uh, Doug Griffin, uh, second baseman for the Boston uh, Red Sox, who was in the minor league system, who played the, who was in the Naval Reserve. Uh, Terry Thompson pitched for the uh, uh, California Angels. And then there was a fellow by the name of Fred Newman that played for uh, uh, the Chicago Cubs pitcher. And then basketball, we had players from San Jose State, from Cal, uh, Berkeley, uh, well, let's see, uh, Stanford, uh, Santa Clara. Uh, so, and we played against college teams that came over uh, to Hawaii at that time. So for two years, I was basically redshirted, all right, serving our country. I was attached to a submarine uh, during those two years, but uh, my submarine was in dry dock getting uh, uh, new engines and, and repairs. And so they reassigned me to the submarine squadron one, which was the Pacific Fleet Commander's office. So I did that for two years. And then playing basketball over there, I ended up getting uh, uh, some looks from colleges and, and ended up getting a, a scholarship offer from uh, Red Rocha, uh, the coach at the University of Hawaii. So I, I was there three years, uh, co-captain my junior and senior year, and uh, finished up in uh, 71 and went to Europe. I got drafted by the Phoenix Suns, had breakfast and lunch, went home for dinner, and uh, <laughs> then went, went overseas and had the most wonderful experience of my life playing and coaching uh, in uh, Belgium, Southern Belgium. That's great. Years. And and then you, I know you had a uh, a great run as far as your your time in, in the NBA with a couple of different teams. You coached in 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 Greece, and then and then began this amazing career of impacting so many kids. What was was the coaching side of it? Was that something? Uh, did you felt like you were always going to go that route at some point or, or when did that kind of well, uh, trick? You know, when I, that's a great question, uh, Brett. When I uh, finished playing uh, uh, basketball, actually when I, when I, uh, I awoke, all right. And, and realized that uh, I had more to give than a jump shot from 20 feet. Uh, and I think what, what impacted me was, was living in Europe and, and being around people and their culture and, and their customs and, and uh, 
uh, their language and, and realizing that, that these people have been displaced, you know, uh, twice because of World War, World Wars and, and World War One, and World War Two. And I met a World War One man, 90 years old, never, never flew in a plane, never drove a car, was a railroad conductor. But uh, here he was, you know, and it was translated and he was just telling me about his life and, 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 you know, had to, had to, uh, uh, being displaced meant that the family had to, to leave their, their, their home. And, and they, they went to Northern France, uh, and basically, uh, hid in a barn and they used their silverware for barter. Uh, and I always un never understood in, in, uh, American, uh, uh, culture, why silverware was so important. And what it was is it was used as a barter during war. You know, when you didn't have money, it was, it came back to, you know, gold and, and silver, you know, yeah. and that's how you're able to trade and, and get food. And so um, a lot of people, you know, uh, during World War II were displaced and, and that's how they survived. You know, you had your underground, you had other people that just went ahead and migrated, you know, to other parts of uh, Southern Europe. Uh, and so it impacted me, Brad. And, and I know I, I digress a little bit and go on this story, but I think it's important. My background, you know, wasn't always I was always going to be a, a basketball coach. When I mm -hmm. quit playing, I was a, uh, I, I, uh, I, I owned uh, uh, the equipment on an alfalfa ranch. Never did that before in Eastern California and got involved in the community there and, and uh, worked on a cattle ranch for a couple of years and raised the hay there while the, the rancher, you know, had, you know, a couple thousand head of cattle. And, and, uh, and so I got a lot of life experiences and, and having to solve things on my own you know whether it was mm -hmm. mechanical or or uh, agriculturally and 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 so the lessons that i learned from you know the, the the life experiences up to that point really helped me uh decide the direction that that i felt i would you know best serve my fellow man and so i got involved in the community in eastern california and uh was a volunteer basketball coach there on the varsity jvs and freshmen had a camp uh, for kids uh, in the summer called the High Sierra Basketball Camp. And I just, I realized just how close I was uh, in working with kids and teaching kids, all right? There are only two habits, you know, uh, good and bad. There are only two ways to play the game, the right way and the wrong way. And so I had a very simple philosophy to help kids, uh, you know, forgive themselves when they made mistakes. You know, mistakes are part of the learning process. And so I, I would always, you know, try to be uh, as positive as I could, whether it was coaches or whether it was kids. And so that, that foundation was established from, from the things I learned, you know, playing and then also not playing and, and just uh, being a part of community. Well, I, I did so well that I was offered a, a position in the probation department, juvenile probation department, to be a, a volunteer juvenile justice commissioner in Inyo County, which I did. And uh, from there, I, uh, and that oversaw the delinquency problems in, in uh, Inyo County, uh, which is the largest county in, in the state of California and encompasses uh, Death Valley uh, all the way over to uh, Highway 395 and down to Ridgecrest. Long story short, it ended up where I became a boys group home director. They, had, they were sending all the boys down to uh, California Youth Authority, and the kids would come back with these uh, pencil and, and ink tattoos and and, uh, and and just their whole behavior had changed they, they really had become uh, gang oriented and 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 I and I recognized it and I said listen the only way this is going to change is we got to break the link with Southern California because you have a whole different element down there so 
the, there were a number of homes that were uh, basically vacant, left by the Department of Water and Power in Los Angeles after they built the aqueduct, the 350-mile aqueduct that went into Los Angeles from the Sierras that brought water, fresh water to them. And so I, I was the first uh, boys' group home director. They still have it uh, in, the, in the county there. I introduced a, uh, a program uh, to uh, help uh, in the summer uh, in the trailheads uh, to help reduce the miscreant activities, break-ins, and what have you. And I ended up uh, recommending uh, to the, the Board of Supervisors to open up all the, the middle schools and get uh, the students that came back from college and hire them as counselors mm. and pay them $10 an hour, not $3 an hour. And uh, to this day, they still have that, Brett. Uh, I'm wow. very proud that we reduced the, uh, the trailhead break-ins uh, almost 6% to almost nothing now. Now they have cameras. But I, I share that with you because I just wasn't always a jock. I, I haven't always been a jock. I've always been involved <laughs> in social justice. And I think we all have an obligation to do that. I know you believe that also in, in yeah. what you represent. And so, you know, basketball has just basically been, been a, a, uh, a vehicle for me. And, and the engine is, is the desire and the passion that I have to be able to share uh, the, the wonderful life experiences I've, I've had uh, going to 47 different countries in my basketball life. Yeah, that, that's, that's incredible just to hear, hear about your journey. And, and I'm, I'm just I'm curious, as you, as you travel to these different countries and, and, and just poured into people, I'm, I'm, I'm curious, you, know, you talked about your, your dad's point about explaining or teaching the why uh, of things. I'm, I'm curious, just well, what did you find yourself talking about as well that you felt like, you know what, that this is this is something I learned from, from my dad or, or, or something that, that I see now as, as an older adult that, that I, need, I need to pass this on to other people. What, what, what were some things other than kind of the, the concept of the why that you felt so important to pass on to kids? Well, there are two things that really stand out, and, and they're basically the foundation of, of, of my uh, coaches' clinics that I do for volunteer coaches that I've done for the last 40 years. And, and one, uh, the one that really stands out was when he was uh, the general manager of the San Diego Rockets. Uh, this was back in 1968. It was during the summer. And, and I heard him having, he always, you know, was on the phone with a coach. And, and if, if it wasn't a coach, then he would go through the litany of, of uh, his sons. Uh, Tommy. Uh, no, Roger. Ah, oh, damn it. Greg. Uh, uh, <laughs> Uh, you know, he couldn't remember who, who was the, the call was for. But anyway, I remember him saying, and, and it just, it, it, I, I've never forgotten it. You know, I, I, I touch on it uh, uh, every time I'm, I'm uh, thinking about uh, basketball. And, and, and what he said to this coach, he says, Coach, I want you to understand something. There are many, many coaches in the world of basketball, but there are very few teachers. So you have to decide. What type of coach you're going to be? And he says, in basketball, my basketball philosophy is, is like this. And, Brett, and I know you've heard this before. There's two schools, simplicity and execution and surprise and change. And so if, you're, if you keep it simple for your players and the repetition prepares them for competition, then this is me just taking it a little further, stretching it mm -hmm. out. Mm -hmm. then your players are going to be mentally prepared, okay? They're not going to be awestruck, you know, by indiv any individual or, 
or any uh, 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 um, onslaught, you know, of, of the other team if they stayed within, you know, the parameters of, of the discipline that they were taught. And so the execution part carries over into the game. So the laboratory is, is the practices and, and working uh, on the ingredients and bringing it all together. And then the, the games, the exhibition was a competition. And so, you know, I, I, I man, I, I thought, you know, I never, I never wrote it down. It just, it just, you know, hit me full on, you know, how, how true he was. And then he said the surprise and change coaches are the ones that are the screamers. They're standing on the sidelines. They're yelling at the players as the ball is rebounded and the outlet is made and the player stops now and, and to hear what the coach is calling, the play that he's calling. And, and he takes away the, the, the spontaneity, he takes away the, 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 the opportunity for the player to create, you know, what he sees and, and, uh, and, and let the game, uh, you know, evolve from there and flow from there. And that, you know, after timeouts and free throws, you know, you have your sets and what have you. But, but the players know from practice, you know, what has to be done. And, and so that's what they execute. And, and that's what we, you know, we, you know our, our practices are, are, are disciplined and, and they're organized and, and players are responsible to one another. And, and that's what I remember. You know, and that's I never awesome. forgot that. The, the other great. one is, and you've heard this, is that he goes, he, I remember him telling coaches, he says, uh, coaching uh, lasts uh, a practice, lasts a week, lasts a month, lasts a season, lasts a game, but teaching lasts a lifetime. Mm. Now, that one there knocks them all out. Okay, when they hear that, because then <laughs> then they understand why I why I am there. I'm not there, you know, to uh, you know uh, get autographs, give autographs, or whatever. I, I'm there to teach, and and so it, it. I've had more young coaches come up to me and tell me just that one statement alone made me realize that I don't know much about teaching, mm. and so you know that that to me is is. Uh, is you know priceless when when a coach comes up and is is humbled enough to be able to acknowledge that it's not going to be about him but he wants to be the best model that he can be in teaching kids you know the game and 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 that's so that's that's my passion brother and that that's that's what i believe in and and until you know i'm i'm, I'm dust in the air uh, that's that's what i'm i'm doing you know that's what i have been doing that's that's awesome and, and that's you know for me i was fortunate to to be around your dad at the at towards the end of obviously his his years and and to for me you know I I got to see kind of the end of the of the Pete Noel big man camp and I and I was just blown away at 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 even later on in his life just a passion and 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 enjoyment that he he got in in seeing people get better whether that was on the court or off the court and and i was wondering if you could just just talk a little bit about kind of the beginning uh your early recollections of the big man camp because when you hear the stories that you know it started with him just helping one person in kermit washington you know so many people think of the big the big man camp as all of these nba players and number one draft picks and and yet when you hear the history of it you it it, it was the, the simplicity of him just helping one person. That's really how it started. Right. I was wondering if you could just talk about that. Sure. Uh, Kermit, you know, was uh, a draft choice uh, of the Lakers at the time. And, and uh, my dad was, was uh, living in Rancho, uh, uh, excuse me, no, he was living in, in uh, 
uh, Southern California, Palos Verdes at the time, uh, uh, you know, still uh, doing some work for the Warriors scouting, what have you. And, and he, uh, he was approached by, uh, by Kermit and uh, about, you know, working with him. And the, the thing that, that really stood out when uh, Kermit approached him was that Kermit had never played uh, facing the basket. You know, I don't know if you remember, he was, you know, six, six, eight and a half, six, nine and about 270, you know, and he was a fierce rebounder and it was very difficult to stop with his back to the basket, but he had no footwork. He, my dad felt he had the confirmation for a big man, but he, he, he didn't have the, the passing skills, didn't have the, the read, react, attack, you know, um, skill set yet. I, I won't say ability because it, it evolved. Okay. He became more comfortable through repetition of uh, facing the basket, but, but it started there. And then, you know, my dad never charged him anything. And then Kermit started bringing flowers over. He knew that dad <laughs> loved roses. So he, you know, my dad's backyard, my mom and dad's backyard started out with about maybe uh, a dozen roses. And by then, you know, we, we could have opened up a florist, you know, uh, <laughs> for the number of roses and flowers that Kermit, you know, would give to dad. And then, and then uh, uh, Kiki Vandaway, uh, was at UCLA at the time, and, and he became part of the, the, uh, the program uh, because uh, I'm trying to remember Kiki's uh, dad's name, uh, who, uh, you know, dad knew very well from his days at USF. And so uh, it ended up where Kiki and, and now uh, uh, Kermit. And then there was uh, – then another player came, uh, I'm trying to remember uh, – from Marquette, 6'11", uh, player. And so there were three, and then a friend of his, and then, so then it, it, it grew from there. And I would say it, it took about two years before it ended up uh, moving over to Loyola, uh, Los Angeles University. And uh, I think it, it, it ended up where Bill Walton uh, ended up joining in. I mean, it just it grew from there. And as you know, there, I think there were over 600 players by the time he was done, you know, right. uh, holding the, uh, the camps. And so, yeah, you know, that, that's, that's pretty much the way Pete Newell operated, you know, part method, right? Right. <laughs> One on zero, <laughs> right. two, then three. And, and so that, that's pretty much what, what, uh, how it evolved, uh, uh, Brad. Ne never once uh, did he ask for anything. Uh, I think the third or fourth year, Kermit uh, decided uh, to have the players uh, pool their money, and they bought him a 280Z. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and my dad, you know, he loved the horses back in the day, uh, and up until uh, he passed. You know, he loved Del Mar. But uh, this car, you remember the 240. Well, the 280Z yeah. was like, you know, an XKE. Uh, with a longer front, basically, you know, they just extended the the front end, put a bigger uh, engine in it. But he liked it because it it had to pick up and go. And on the inside, there was a little uh, 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 not sticker, uh, uh, in a, um, uh, it was a it was a little uh, uh, memento that said to Coach Pete Newell, uh, "Thank you, Big Man's Camp." And, uh, 
and that's that I remember seeing that it was a silver car and and he uh he drove that until uh he decided he didn't want he didn't need a sports car anymore I think that was when he got into his uh, late 60s when he uh, finally traded that in and, and got a smaller car but that's how it evolved man it went from one to two to three to four and then it, it, it took off from there and then that's when he brought in other uh, coaches Bill McClinic to help and and uh, um, couple young coaches that I yeah. remember and 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 that's what's again what's so incredible is here here's here's a coach that you know reaches the pinnacle as far as you know gets to the final four wins a championship is back the next year's coaching the Olympic team I mean and then he has the you know and then he uh retires but yet he has this kind of second second part of his career of just of just flat out impacting individuals lives and 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 i was wondering if you could just talk about that briefly just most people would would have kind of stayed in the in the limelight of of being the head coach and and it being about the them and it's almost like he kind of took a step back into the background and then just kind of dove into just helping people um and and he just impacted so many not not just players but but coaches lives um i mean it was just amazing well, I, I think that comes, Brett, from, uh, you know, the book that he published. His first book that he published was Basketball Methods. I don't know if you ever read that or saw it. Yeah, uh, yes. It's on my it's, bookshelf uh, right here. It, it's, a, it's, a, it's a basketball Bible for coaches uh, right. at, at any level, you know. But, I mean, if you go through it, you'll see how, how simple he broke it down, even from the pregame meal, you know, and how important statistics were. Um, and so, you know, that, that if, if, if you read, if a coach were to read that book now, you know, it, it would not be, oh, that's old philosophy. They would really understand how, how simple the game is. Right. All right. When, when you teach it, you know, you teach the proper disciplines, you know, and you execute. Okay. And, and so what, what bothered him the most, and I think the reason that, that it really got him connected with the players, because he saw so many players playing the game intercollegiately and getting to the NBA and, and watching NBA players and none of them knew footwork. They didn't know, they didn't know how to reverse pivot. They did, they didn't know how to, you know, create a leap, you know, and, and, uh, and so it really bothered him. Uh, and, and, you know, Pete, Pete would tell you more uh, about that too, but uh, that really stuck to him. And I remember him talking to, to coaches about it. Coach, you got to teach footwork. You got to teach your players not to, not to predetermine, you know, uh, their their uh, their footwork, you know, not to just uh, so the defense can can read off that, and so it, it was uh, for me. It it, it was really uh, kind of a, a wonderful template because I've I've taken that and, and used that uh, my whole life in basketball, you know, and sharing the game and and uh, wanting to uh, to promote it. But you know, the the reason he connected so well with so many players is he was honest with them, Brett. And you know what I mean by that. You know, he yeah. he, he didn't play favorites, you know. He he uh, he may have joked uh, closer with some players than others, but but that was just that was Pete Newell, you know, and the players players never saw saw any uh, uh, any jealousy or, or saw any uh, uh, ego in, in in Pete Newell. Uh, the only time my dad ever got upset with the player was uh, was a player that I had sent to his camp from uh, University of Washington. Uh, Mike Jensen was his name, 6'9 player. And 
you know, could jump elbows above the rim. And so my dad had a, had a, uh, and you remember this, had a standing rule that no dunking right, uh, right. in his camp before or after. You remember that? You remember? I do. Okay. I do. So, yep. <laughs> so anyway, uh, Jensen decided that he wanted to, to go ahead and show some of the brothers over there that were sipping Gatorade. And then my dad was, you know, uh, off the court uh, at the time. And, uh, and so he's, he's throwing, throwing down dunks, you know, left and right between his legs, this, that, and the other. The players are, are hooping and hollering. The veteran players walk off the court. So it's only the young players that are there and a couple others get in. My dad comes back out on the court. <laughs> you can't believe, you can't believe what he's seeing. And he calls him over. And he tells him, you know, that I've been doing this camp for 25 years. I've never had a player disrespect me or my camp by doing something that I said was not allowed. You're excused from my camp. Wow. True story. That's I got a incredible. call from Lorenzo Romar. I got a call from <laughs> Lorenzo Romar. I called him back, told him what was going on. And Lorenzo was really close. You know, at that time, he was really close to my dad. And uh, Lorenzo was so embarrassed. Because he knew, you know, Michael is just one of those, those HDHD kids. And uh, give you an idea, he's a great kid. I mean, he's a great kid. And, and he, he had some skills. He had some talent. He just didn't have the discipline. But, but uh, Michael was working at, at Nordstrom's uh, one summer and, and got up on a ladder to get something off a shelf. And his head hit a sprinkler head in the, uh, in the, uh, uh, the back room there. And set off all the uh, the uh, sprinklers, <laughs> oh, and wow. uh, that, that that was the last time Mike Michael worked for uh, uh, Nordstrom's. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think that kind of tells you, you know. Uh, and I, I should have I should have vetted him better, you know. Yeah. I mean, Lorenzo asked me, you know, and he's never asked me if if I would call my dad on a player, and Lorenzo was too humble to ask my dad, so I did, you know. And I I, I take responsibility for not vetting that and and mike michael also you know he banned up and apologized and just you know, was embarrassed felt so bad and and uh but you know he learned from it and and i i share that story with with kids about making sure you always listen to what the coach's instructions are the first day you go to camp don't ever ever be the first one all right to be called out because you did not listen and uh i've i've there's been only one time that I, I've, I've had a, a problem in uh, 45 years of doing camps, Brett, and that was in Alaska. A 11-year-old boy decided he wanted to uh, hang on uh, some curtains, and, and, uh, uh, and I, my back was turned, but he was hanging on a curtain in the, the, the elementary school gym in, in Ketchikan, Alaska. And he was swinging on it out, out, out on the court and back. And all the kids were going, ooh, ah. And I told the kids, you know, you're not to be on the stage, this, that, and the other. And so he came down. You know, I stopped it. I, I never used a whistle uh, in any of my camps or clinics. I never used a whistle. And so I got him over there, and, and I asked him, I said, now, let me ask you something. Do you remember what I said about camp, starting camp? Yes. And I said, well, what was the one thing I said? You said not to get up on the stage. 
And I said, and I said, you're right. And I said, so what did you do? I got on the curtain. I said, well, how did you get on the curtain? He says, well, I, I got up on the stage. Well, that was your first mistake. Now, what was your second mistake? I got on the curtain. That's right. Now, what I want you to do is I want you to take a basketball. I want you to go to the corner. And you're going to sit there and you're going to bounce the basketball. All right, with your right hand, then your left hand. He says, right now? I said, right now. <laughs> so, uh, and the reason I did that, Brett, not to embarrass him in front of the others, but I wanted, wanted him to know there's always a consequence when you're on a team. And that the other players have to learn from your, your mistake and your consequence. So I don't have to explain it. They're going to they're gonna communicate to one another why this happened. Because they all saw him, you know, on the, on the stage. So I don't have to be the heavy voice. They're, they're, they're basically, you know, uh, policing themselves. Never had another problem in camp, Brett. Never had another problem in camp. And these were 8, <laughs> eight to 11-year-olds. So I always share that story with the kids, too, in camp. I always want them to remember you got to listen to coach. If you don't listen to coach, you're going to get in trouble. So that's my <laughs> that's coach. Awesome. Story. That's okay. awesome. Why you, uh, these stories could go on forever. I, I was wondering if we could just finish up with this, this yes. question here. You know, you're, you you're doing so much around the globe right now, doing different, being a part of different programs, one with the state department, you're, you're, you're traveling to a lot of different countries. I, I was wondering if you could just kind of finish up here. Just, just talk to us about kind of where you're, mission is now as far as you know just trying to impact lives and and help other people obviously with with the foundation of all the things you've, you've talked about previously just if you could just talk a little bit about your your mission moving forward here at this point sure. in your life i i uh, i've been representing uh, our state department as sports ambassador uh the last three years that program has been suspended uh, but Prior to that, I, I had been to Vladivostok, Russia, four times into Siberia with our State Department as a sports ambassador, working with coaches there and, and kids doing camps and clinics. And uh, more recently, uh, Micronesia and the Marshall Islands have, uh, and uh, Hong Kong and the Philippines have been my, uh, my work uh, as far as FIBA as an expert instructor certifying level one and level two coaches, but also working in conjunction with uh, our uh, our embassies, our missions in uh, Micronesia uh, and uh, also Palau uh, uh, in the mid-Pacific. Uh, but, you know, I, I, I can tell you this, Brett, there isn't a day that doesn't go by where I'm thinking about uh, coming out of the, the pandemic and, and the importance that I feel, the, the compelling importance I feel to be able to, to do clinics again for youth coaches and to make them understand how important their message of positivity is with the kids because they haven't yeah. been around teams. The personality hasn't evolved like normally it does when you're in a team environment. You know, the kids not so much defer, but they, they watch, they observe, they learn from each other. So they're missing all this practice time, whether it's soccer or whether it's softball or baseball or basketball or swimming or whatever. It's just they're, they're missing that, that the camaraderie that they don't even know how to spell, that they're learning about their psyche that they don't even know yet uh you know what an ego is but but the most important figure that they have in their life apart from their family is is that volunteer coach all right in the boys and girls club uh and ymca you know uh uh or the 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 community centers and and those coaches have responsibility now to really understand the importance of of the modalities of learning okay and, and teaching first and coaching second i mean i would love to see 
youth basketball uh, next year, grades uh, uh, the three through five, uh, play two different halves, okay, to keep a new score each half. Just go one season like that. So in other words, the first half, you know, uh, you, you have a score, and then you start again so that mm-hmm. you don't have scores 80 to 20 uh, because right. that's just going to compound the psychological impact that's already been put upon uh, our children today in sports. And so uh, that's, that's my big proponent. I've got, you know, YMCA here in, in Oregon, Beaverton, Oregon, that, that uh, I've talked to about this and doing a free clinic for coaches, youth coaches, and the importance of us being able to, to build them up again and, and the kids. Uh, and so uh, I'm, I'm working on that. Uh, I also have an opportunity to, uh, to go to Belgium uh, and do some uh, uh, consulting there in their basketball program, youth. Uh, program and oversee uh, the development of coaches and players there. Uh, and so, and that was prior to the COVID, uh, but I'm still uh, in contact with people there. And, and uh, once this thing lifts, uh, I'm planning on going over there and, and uh, uh, do some, do some work, uh, you know, with the coaches and, and the players, boys and girls there. That's great. That's great. And uh, again, we, we could go on forever talking about, <laughs> talking about right. your dad, but I, I want to thank you for, uh, you know, just sharing some insight and just some wisdom that, that uh, again, the purpose of this whole podcast series is just to be able to, to uh, share and, and pass on, you know, just some of the great things that, that you know, your dad just impacted so many lives and, and we want that to, to continue and it is continuing. And uh, again, Amen. I just want to thank, thank you for your time and uh, really appreciate your insight. You bet, Brett.